so my name's Gareth Chick. I'm uh, founder and managing partner of Collaborative Equity, and I've recently published uh, two books, uh, which are my uh, life's work of 40 years experience in the corporate world, both as CFO, CEO, chairman, consultant, trainer, coach, um, manager, uh, uh, everything. <laughs> Fantastic. I, um, I always knew that I wanted to work in, in business. Um, I got my first dream job when I was 12 years old. I badgered my local greengrocer because I wanted to be the one out front serving the customers and twirling the uh, brown paper bags full of vegetables, um, so which I loved. And I got some advice. Um, I did my first psychometric test at 16, and I got some advice to train as an accountant and become a move into general management. And that's what I did. And I was a man on a mission. Uh, I was uh, a very young CFO. I was a CFO at 24. Uh, and at 28, uh, I was CFO of a PLC uh, subsidiary in the UK, um, and I was very successful. I was very driven. I was very controlling, and I was very arrogant. And I got sent on a leadership course. Uh, I really didn't want to go. I behaved quite badly in the, on the first morning of the course because I honestly thought I was better than everybody there and didn't they know how busy I was and how important I was. And thankfully, the instructor on the course, a gentleman named Walter Blackburn, took me to one side and gave me probably my first piece of very tough feedback. Um, and he told me to grow up or go. Uh, uh, and I decided that maybe this was the time. Um, that was 34 years ago. The language of leadership development in those days was slightly different. We didn't really talk about coaching. We didn't really talk about emotional intelligence. But that's what that leadership course gave me. I was so inspired by it that I asked if I could train uh, to learn how to run the course and deliver it to other people. And so for the next 14 years, I had a very weird career. I was a full-time CFO, general manager, ops director, and then chief executive um, for 12 years. And my hobby was running leadership programs for Dale Carnegie Training. Um, and in which I met a lot of my current clients, um, a lot of my current clients who are currently, you know, PLC, you know, board members um, came through leadership courses with me, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago. What I realized while I was delivering the leadership courses was that I was coming, the, the, the material was great, um, but that I was coming to it from a slightly different angle because I was in the day to day pressure. And I really identified with the with the hard press managers that were in front of me in the leadership courses. And I realized that a leadership course, it wasn't enough just to win the intellectual argument. Uh, most managers know how to coach and they know how to lead authentically. Uh, they just can't do it when the pressure's on. And so I noticed what I was really developing was a particular style of, of leadership training and coaching training. Uh, that was coming from a place of understanding the psychological effects of, of being constantly under pressure. And that was the start of my sort of journey of research. I did a huge amount of research into neuroscience, into psychotherapy. Um, and um, when I decided to step down from my last chief executive role, I fully intended to go back and run another big business, who I thought I was. Uh, and I said I got very busy doing consulting work because I had a ready-made 
client base, all the people who've been through courses with me. And then I got offered two chairman's jobs, which really appealed to me. One was a private equity, a very nice software business, which I chaired for eight years, floated it on the um, AIM market, uh, and then uh, did a trade sale. Um, and I also chaired a social housing organization, which was a, a delight. It was a tenant-led housing association, which was brilliant. Um, so for the last 20 years, I've done a mix of sort of chairing jobs, I've done consulting, and I've developed further my, um, particularly my training uh, products around coaching. And um, a lot of big companies have taken uh, this uh, leadership, uh, this uh, coaching course uh, that I wrote, um, including Google. Uh, I spend probably about 20% of my time now working with Google all around the world. I've coached about 30 of their vice presidents all around the world. Um, and I have the most blessed and lucky life. Um, I travel the world meeting fantastic people. They become vulnerable to me very quickly. And that's an extraordinary um, privileged place to work. Um, I have no anxiety in my work. Um, and uh, I still remember the stresses and anxieties of being a chief executive. I don't miss that. I miss the my ego misses the power and being able to throw my weight around a bit. Um, but um, um, I'm, I'm happy to do the deal to um, uh, that uh, a stress-free life is um, is more than compensation. I wrote my first book, uh, which is called And the Leader Is, which has actually just been published um, between sort of five and ten years ago. And I then realized I couldn't really let that out first. I had to put the um, another book out first, and that became the book called Corporate Emotional Intelligence, Being Human in a Corporate World, which is, I think, where I, I, uh, I met um, Kate Murden, uh, who came across my book. And it's a an analysis of the psychology of the corporate world and why uh, decent, honourable, ethical people come to behave in um, abnormal and sometimes even aberrant ways simply because they uh, have power uh, and control uh, it was a world I knew very well what why did you why couldn't why couldn't you publish and the leader is first what was why did you have to do it the other way around um, because um, there are a million books on leadership out there uh, and I knew that you know while my book is good um, it's just an, in a way, it's just another book on leadership, how to lead, how to coach, how to build teams, how to change organizations, how to change cultures. Um, and I knew that actually uh, my 40 years in the corporate world, what was really unique about me was my discovery of what I call unconscious controlling habits and that that really needed to be explained. And so emotional intelligence, which is, um, you know, very much um, has come to the fore in the last few years in corporations, in my view, is not enough. Emotional intelligence, fundamentally based on self-awareness and self-regulation, but primarily when people have an opportunity to calm themselves down and get into a space where they can think rationally. And most managers these days are so under pressure all the time that they need a deeper uh, and different emotional intelligence. They need corporate emotional intelligence. And so that's why I felt I had to write that book first and get that book out. And so it, they're really two parts of a, 
of a single work. I always intended to write j- just the one book, uh, but um, my publisher um, decided <laughs> that um, uh, persuaded me eventually that it should they should become two. And so that uh, sub subconscious habits, did you say controlling habits, unconscious? Yes, the way that um, they're easy to remember is the acronym is uh, so our unconscious controlling habits. The acronym is OUCH, uh, which is uh, so a little easier to remember. And um, so when I'm working with a group of people and I ask them, so I've asked this question, uh, Dominic, uh, you know, uh, thousands of times to probably tens of thousands of managers across the world. What is your worst habit as a manager when you are under pressure? And the beauty of that question is that once people just get past their little sort of scouty answer, when they they sort of test their audience or whether they can be absolutely vulnerable, um, all managers know what they do under pressure. And they know that what they're doing under pressure is not growing their people. It gets the job done today, but it doesn't develop people. Um, and so they have to sort of defer the people development side until the pressure is off. And of course, the pressure is never off. So I identified uh, three prime uh, unconscious controlling habits, and uh, I outlined them in the book as step, you know, the four pillars of corporate emotional intelligence. And step one or pillar one is self-awareness around these habits. And they're very simple. Uh, the first is we ask um, close questions. Um, and uh, when a manager asks a close question, it's not a genuine question. There's no curiosity about whether the answer is yes or no. It's a completely controlling uh, device. Um, and in fact, most managers will tell you what the right answer is in the tone of voice they use to ask the question. So it's not a question. It's a controlling device. And close questions have become our prime controlling tool as managers. So when I do a very simple exercise, and I ask managers to um, do a little 10-minute exercise. Say, co- you know, coach your partner. Let's make it real. Um, your subject matter will be your partner's most pressing business problem as they sit here today. So that makes it real. And, and managers immediately come under the pressure to want to be helpful. Um, and uh, I say it's very simple. Um, no close questions. Just ask open questions. And uh, I've had grown uh, men and women, you know, um, sobbing on the floor, beating their hands, physically saying, I can't do it. I can't ask open questions. Uh, well, you can, um, but I understand that your brain is fried at the moment. And, and while, while your brain is fried, all that will come out will be closed questions and statements. Uh, the second of the habits that we have is filling silences. Uh, and when you're using the survival part of your brain, when you're, when you're under huge amounts of pressure and you've got adrenaline flowing around your body and you've got cortisol flushing your brain as a stress hormone. Um, so, and you ask, even if you ask somebody a question, if there is two or three seconds of silence, the manager will then continue to speak. So they've just <laughs> completely hijacked. I've asked you this great question, it's really made you think you need a, you need a few moments to stay calm, you to, to access the, the neocortex, to access all that information that's in your brain in, non, in non-verbal form. It's not in language. Bring it into your prefrontal cortex, turn it into language and articulate it. Um, I can't even wait three seconds. And so managers have two ways typically that they will fill a silence. One is that they will answer their own question, uh, which is so much quicker. Um, 
considering most managers rarely ask a question to which they don't already know the answer. These are, you know, just become controlling tools. So, Dominic, if I were to, you know, do this to you, I might say to you, um, uh, so, Dominic, you know, you've got this, um, you've got this really important client uh, meeting coming up tomorrow. You know, um, you know, how are you going to open the meeting? Uh, are, are you going to use that? Um, are you going to use that slide deck that we went through? Um, you see, I, you know, why don't I just ask you how you're going to open the meeting? But I can't uh, because you might say, you might say, oh, um, well, that's fair. How am I going to? Yeah. How am I going to open the meeting? And my brain's going "Oh, for God's sake. It wasn't a hard question. You know, we prepared for this. So um, why would I give you the opportunity to um, to be frustrating to me? So I just answer you. I'll answer my own question. Uh, the other way we have of filling a silence is to make a motivational statement. So if I ask you, Dominic, how are you going to open that client, that really important client meeting tomorrow, and you go quiet because you're having to think about it, um, and my brain says, oh, Dominic, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, we've talked about this. If you're not ready, you know, if, you, if the answer isn't right there, um, clearly you're not motivated at the moment. Clearly you don't have the same sense of urgency that I have. So I know what I'll do is I'll make a motivational statement to inject you with some urgency and then you'll be able to give me the right answer. And it would sound something like this. Um, so, Dominic, uh, you know, really important client presentation tomorrow. Um, how, you, how are you going to um, open the meeting? Because, um, uh, Dominic, uh, you know, I'll tell you now, I, I know Charlie and I've known him for a long time. If you don't grab his attention right in the first few seconds of the meeting, you're toast, my friend. Sorry, now that I've motivated you and I've stressed <laughs> to you the urgency of the situation, now you'll be able to say, oh, well, um, I'm going <clears throat> to use that slide deck that we went through the other day. Right answer, Dominic. That's brilliant. Good. What a great coach I am. And the final habit that we have um, is we give multiple inputs. We seem incapable, physically incapable of asking one question, allowing the person to think, listening to their answer and responding to you know, that to the response that they've given us. So I see managers and uh, they start talking, they ask a question, they ask an open question, followed by a closed question, followed by three statements, another open question, and then a closed question. And because under pressure, my survival brain is trying to get all of the information out, give you all the context. Otherwise, I may, f I may forget something. And that means that I'm no longer in control. Well, all I know is if my boss um, has got a bit of stress uh, going on and my boss asks me four questions in a row, I know which one I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer the easy one. I'm going to answer the one where I can please my boss, put a smile back on their face, um, convince my boss that actually I am in control, even though there's a couple of questions that my boss asked me that were, would cause me to, to struggle a little bit. And I do not like to struggle in front of my boss. <laughs> normally when i if, if i go through that you know the it's what happens dominic is the the identification comes up immediately managers say god i do these things and when they realize that they're everybody else around them me included you know these are the habits that come from being under pressure it takes away the shame it takes away the guilt managers carry a lot of shame and guilt because they know how they should be with their people, 
but they're not like that under pressure. They, they know that they're either over-controlling, over-aggressive, uh, making the other person do what they want them to do, or they're over-passive. They say, give it to me, I'll do it, I'll take it away, I'll do it myself. And uh, m- you know, managers will fall into basically one of those camps. And if you strip you know, psychometric profiling down in terms of its basics, people will predominantly either become over-aggressive or they will become over-passive. I'm going to make you do it, or I will do it myself. And this is the way I get control back in a moment of pressure. It it seems to me, though, that the, the behaviours you describe have probably been learnt on the job because nobody has ever pointed out to those managers before that there's another way to do it, and it's just how somebody managed them. So when you get promoted to be a manager, you just do what was done to you. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's called conforming to a, you know, corporate culture. Um, I, I don't think I, I've, you know, and I've Googled this on the internet. I don't think you can go on a course that teaches you how to ask close questions. You know, I, I don't think such a thing exists. <laughs> it's, they haven't been trained. Definitely. They haven't been trained. Nowhere in, I've never seen it in corporate values. You know, thou, sh- thou shalt use controlling techniques. Um, these are completely learned behaviors. So one of the bizarre thing that happens on a training course is I get people say, how do I, I get this, but how do I make open questions more natural? And I say, but open questions are natural. It's your controlling habits that are unnatural. There isn't any other walk of life that you would go about having these weird conversations with people. It comes because you have power. It comes because you have a, um, an issue around your self-image and proving your value as a manager. Uh, and if all you do is ask questions, somebody's going to say to me, well, you know, you know I, I thought you're supposed to be smarter than I am. You certainly get paid more than I do. And all you do is ask questions. You know, what value is that? So managers have got a real, they've got a real self-esteem issue here, but nobody has pointed this out to them before. The moment they get confronted with those unconscious controlling habits, the moment they realize physically that they are not in the habit of asking open questions. So even a simple 10 minute open question exercise. And I ask people that, you know, the question, because I, you know, I don't, I don't have to teach them the difference and I prove to them that they're, you know, that they can, they're very good at open questions by asking them this question. At what age were you at your very finest as an asker of open questions? And people know, three years old, three-year-old kids, <laughs> three-year-old kids ask open questions. They ask exquisite open questions. Why? Because they're curious. They want to learn. They have no shame about you thinking that they don't know. Um, and unfortunately, 30, 40, 50 or 60 years later, we arrive in corporate positions. And the last thing we want to show is vulnerability. So I can't ask you a question and have you think that I don't know the answer to it. So these controlling habits, we get so much practice at them. We become brilliant at them. And the, the, the real dilemma is we're so brilliant at them, we do hit short term targets. And so we survive. And the worst types of managers quite often get rewarded because they're so hard driving. And I was one of those managers in my 20s. They're so hard driving. They get the job done. They can even exceed expectations for a short period of time until everybody burns out. Or actually, thankfully, these days, somebody puts their hand up and says, please don't treat me like that anymore. 
Uh, and thankfully, you know, the, corp the corporate world is now you know, starting to wake up to the fact that there is an immense amount of abuse and bullying and intimidation going on. And, you know, there has to come a point where it's not acceptable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, uh, just taking you back on your, on your corporate journey, you've had, uh, you worked for, you worked for a lot of big companies. Are your clients now, do they tend to be like Google? Do they tend to be senior leaders in large companies? Yes. Uh, so that's really my, my sweet spot is very large multinationals and senior leaders running organizations of 10,000, 20,000, 100,000, you know, people. So I, I will work with smaller organizations uh, I, I where there is a personal introduction. So somebody of one of my clients or somebody I know says, look, I, you know, there's a company over here, they're really struggling, or this guy's really struggling, will you work with them? Yes, I will. Um, and frequently I'll do that either with no fee or a very small fee, you know, I'll, but only when that comes through a personal um, rec you know, recommendation. And I'm so I'm I'm surprised because I would have thought if you were a senior leader in a big company, your your sort of your desire to be vulnerable is potentially even even lower than um, somebody on the way up in a smaller organisation. How do you how do they end up coming to you? Do they does somebody does somebody nominate them for some Gareth love, or do they put their hands up and say, you know, I'd I'd like to understand how to be better at this. I think there's sort of two elements. Um, so there is a cohort um, at senior levels in organisations where, um, and this is this is a slightly unkind comment. It's not quite as bad as this. I, you know, a few years ago, if I go back ten or fifteen years, when I was starting to do one-to-one ex -one executive coaching, which I just I, I noticed that I was coaching my clients um, without necessarily calling it that or even billing it separately. And so I thought, you know, yes, when people said, do you, you know, will you do some coaching? Um, I think there was a time back then when it became fashionable, you know, to have a coach. You know, I, you know, I've, I've, I've reached my sea level. Um, you know, I've ordered the big car and I've got my coach um, and almost worn like a sort of ego badge. Um, it's not really it's not like that in some pockets. It still is. There is a real. Um, desire on the part of senior leaders and their uh, companies um, senior the senior leadership role is a very stressed role and in terms of well-being um, there's a lot more cognizance these days about executive stress and about um, you know the 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 loneliness that goes into that into that place and who does an executive have to talk to they can't really talk to their boss because um, uh, their worry is that they'll a they'll show weakness, uh, and secondly that um, going to your boss and saying I'm not sure how I feel about this or I'm not sure what to do about this, um, their experience normally is they either get punished for that uh, in like well what do you mean you don't know you're the chief executive or um, the the person will step in and tell them what to do neither of which are very helpful whereas being able to say to their coach um, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Um, I'm spent. I am. I. I am. I am bereft of ideas, and be accepted in that moment as a as a decent, normal human being. 
um, is an amazingly powerful. So there is an element, absolutely, of sort of therapy to this. There is a therapeutic element. Most of the training I've done in the last 10 years has been in psychotherapy, not in, in, in management. Um, and um, for their companies, you know, knowing that uh, there is they that they there is some responsibility that they've had in putting some well-being support around the executive. So I uh, most of the clients I get I would say come from a very positive view of I'm I'm just being promoted. You know I really want to just help with this. I do a lot of um, coaching one-to-one with first-time chief executives um, because that's you know that's that's a, again a sort of sweet spot for me. Very occasionally, I'll get a call from a client saying, uh, we have um, a talented person. Um, they are probably, if they, if they don't correct their fault, uh, then they will be fired. Um, and um, so I sit and do a three-way with the, with the uh, client. Um, my, my terms are, I'll, I'll work with that person, but only if they've been told the truth. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sort of be slunk in as some sort of manipulative, you know, device. Uh, but that's quite, that's quite rare. I think the, um, you know, the, the attitude and the culture around corporate workplaces, um, you know, it's changed a lot, um, uh, certainly over my 40 years for good and bad. I think the good side is there is much more, um, awareness of uh, mental health issues and stress levels and you know physically what uh, what corporate workplaces are doing to people um, on the other hand um, the, divorce, the the dissociation of course still in terms of real sort of ownership and you know the markets and the analysts and the hedge funds and the investors um, it's still uh, the pressure actually still uh, it, it's in my view gets worse and worse. And we've had the digital revolution of the last five years. Um, the ubiquitous smartphone has come along and changed, you know, radically, you know, the, the, the way that people are having to work. Um, and if you work in a multinational now, you are basically never really off duty. You know, you, um, you have, um, if you're in the UK, if you're working for a US business, um, then, uh, you know, you're doing uh, uh, video calls into the evening with your uh, illustrious West Coast colleagues who really don't give a, uh, um, um, uh, they don't care what time it is in Europe. They don't even know what time it is in Europe, really. <laughs> and, and of course, with the technology, you know, I remember the days when you could sit on a conference call at nine o'clock at night with, you know, watching the television, you know, with your family and sort of nodding every now and again or grunting every now and again, at least to, to let them know you were still on the call. Of course, with video calls, you can't do that now. So it's much more pernicious. Um, and then, you know, the um, APAC, um, you know, wakes up. And so, you know, you're having to jump on a call at seven in the morning, um, sometimes with your APAC colleagues as well. And this is the life of, you know, of, of the certainly the big sort of uh, tech businesses, the big uh, accountancy businesses, the big uh, petrochemical businesses, you know, anything, um, the big um, consumer brands these days that are global, if you're a manager in that world, um, you are you are 24-7 and you're running really high levels of adrenaline and cortisol for way longer than we were ever biologically designed to do. And it, and it has got worse even in the last five years, in my view. Yeah, and, and has no, there's no sign that it's going to get better. There'll be 
something will happen and people will will take notice. But before, uh, uh, there was one thing that I wrote down when I was doing some prep, which is, uh, I think, could be wrong, I think that you've got a take on organizational structure and the impact that that has on culture. Yes. Um, I think that, I suppose, Donnie, there are two aspects to that. One is around governance at the very top. And then one is around, uh, you know, the way teams are organized. And I'm a great fan of self-managed teams. Um, I have put self-managed teams into organizations myself. Um, every organization I've run, I have radically reduced the number of management uh, positions um, and increased the size of teams and put lots of stuff around self-managed teams into place. Um, so if I'm um, running retail outlets or stores and the, the work I've done with, with various retailers, um, what I'm always looking at is actually what value is this manager adding? Um, and there are so many management positions that end up getting in the way of innovation and ownership uh, you know, in a store or in a, in a business unit. So I'm very keen on um, driving very high levels of employee engagement and innovation um, through uh, self-managed teams. And then in corporate governance terms, um, because, you know, I've been a chairman a number of times and, and I would count, you know, I'm 62 years old. When I look back at my career, I'm very proud of the two books I've written because they, they are the synthesis of my 40 years. Um, if you ask me for my, you know, the, the role where I'm, I'm at my um, most effective it's in the role of chairman um, and I have very strong views around um, governance uh, depending on clear, clearly on ownership structures or lending structures you know but everybody's got somebody to answer to um, even if it's a, a institutional shareholder or a, a bank that they owe money to um, and the management of those um, dissociated personalities who can um, come to not care that much about how people are being treated in their organization. And the corporate structure, you know, puts dissociation into the mix. And it is exactly the same as um, the dynamic, uh, you know, Dominic, where, you know, I can go to, um, and I, I won't name a store, I can go to a store, I can buy a T-shirt for four pounds if I had to buy that T-shirt directly from the nine-year-old girl in Bangladesh who made it, I may change my behavior. But I don't have to, do I? If I had to, every time I switch my mobile phone on, if I had to go to the 12-year-old Nigerian boy who's, you know, with a gun at his head, going into mine, cold tan out of a, out of a mine so, so that I can have a mobile phone, I would change my behavior. But I don't have to. So there is, um, in my view, the, the, the role of corporate governance has really got to look at how we are um, engaging with uh, the consumer world. And I'm, uh, so my keynote speech that I do as a result of being asked to do lots around the book is called Waking Up in a Corporopathic World. And I link the corporate structures and corporate history to uh, the things that we are currently doing to ourselves, uh, the extinction, climate change, plastic, um, and they are the same thing. We have ended up choking our oceans, well, not our oceans, of course, but, you know, oceans in the developing world, um, with plastic. We are, we are we, you know, 60% of species on the planet close to extinction. Climate change, 
possibly just past the point where we have any chance of really doing something. You know, tens of hundreds of millions of people are going to have to change the way they they operate. Um, they're going to be forced to because of the way we have organized ourselves corporately. So I don't blame the corporation as in itself. I, be, I blame corporatism uh, as the as the ill. So that's both of those. I think are are absolutely fascinating. The uh, one of the I've got two two final questions which I ask uh, all of my guests. One is, um, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, is there a point where something you know now would have been really useful then? Um, I don't want to sound like a, a fatalist. Um, I think the, the, the issue is, it's, it, Dominic, it's really easy for me, you know, after 40 years of refining and iterating and learning, it's quite easy for me to now, you know, pontificate about these things. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I, I was a, an ordinary jobbing executive, you know, for many years. I wasn't intent on changing the world. I believe that I ran the companies I, I ran and the thousands of people that, um, you know, uh, were involved. Um, I know I can put my hand on my heart and say I behaved as ethically as possible and treated people really well and brought the best out in them. Um, I, I made lots of mistakes. I, I there, you know, I, I, in my early days, you know, I, there are two or three occasions which I would still wince about in the way that I treated uh, people. I mean, not no, nothing inappropriate, um, but just, um, you know, decisions that impacted their lives um, that I that uh, that I did without really giving sufficient, you know, humanity to to the decision. Um, I got very excited when um, um, Tony Blair became. Um, uh, Prime Minister in 1997. It sort of, uh, for me, this was the it was the the, the, the repeat of what my parents described as uh, the 1945 moments. My my parents were both uh, very staunch Labour supporters, um, lived you know on on the 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 um, that cataclysmic time. They both lived through the the Second World War actively. Um, they were in the forces for five or six years. And the moment in 1945 when you know, the country said no to Winston Churchill and installed a Labour government. And for me, 1997 was that moment. And I had a sort of fantasy about, you know, maybe I could, um, you know, as, as I saw Tony Blair go off the rails, in my view, um, maybe, uh, you know, I could sort of do something about that. And I made a few tentative, you know, sort of um, approaches, but uh, nothing came back. Um, I don't have any regrets um, I, um, I, uh, I, what I'm trying to do now is be as evangelistic about this, um, and bring the message to as many people as I can. And all I can do really is, you know, the people I touch, um, which is why I'm still, you know, herring around the world, um, at the drop of a hat. Um, you know, I'll go and talk to 50 people, um, you know, for a day and, uh, anywhere, um, is just trying to sort of bring that message. And, um, give people the identification and the empowerment that uh, that the new generations need. Thankfully, Generation X, Generation Z, or the ones coming through, 
um, if we haven't completely um, you know, taken the planet past a certain point. I'm very optimistic about uh, you know, the generations of younger managers coming through. Their, their principles and their values are much less materialistic uh, than um, my generation was. Um, and, um, you know, I count my own, uh, my, my own children, I have four children and I count them in that, that space. They range between 20 and 35. And I'm in awe of the way that they, um, you know, they are, they're living their lives of, of integrity. So they may just come and save me. <laughs> um, in the last few minutes, cause I know you've got to go in five minutes, but, um, the other thing is, you know, you, as you say, you spent 40 years, uh, learning and honing. Maybe there are three books that stand out that you think other people should pick up and digest. Uh, yes, very happy. Uh, and so the number one book that I recommend to everybody, and I have personally given away over 200 copies, um, is a book called Maverick by Ricardo Semler. I first read Maverick in 1995, uh, and I was on my third iteration as a chief exec. And it made complete sense of everything that I believed, uh, but I hadn't quite still had the confidence to do. It is the single greatest book ever written on employee engagement, in my view. Um, I could go back to uh, a book that had a profound effect on me, which was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I first read in 1982 or something like that. And I worked with the Dale Carnegie organization, you know, for 10 years, and I, I proudly held a license to deliver their leadership programs. Um, they, I think if I were to go one more, so you'll see on the wall behind me is a little RSA animation of a book called Drive by Dan Pink. Um, the reason I love this, uh, love his book, uh, Drive, is it's very easily digestible. Um, I have to say, unlike um, my unlike corporate emotion intelligence, which is not the most easily digestible book in in the world, so you know, helpful. <laughs> um, and uh, he talks about the three um, elements of motivation: um, autonomy, meaning, and mastery. And for me, that was you know, it's a it's a fantastic book. Uh, I could in, I would encourage anybody to watch the little ten minute RSA animation of the book Drive. Um, but, uh, and, uh, you know, I could talk about two or three others, but uh, those those would probably be the three. Gareth, that's fantastic. We'll link to, we'll find the automation, and uh, the uh, animation, and we'll link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Um, Gareth, thank you very much indeed for giving me your time today and being a guest on The Melting Pot. It's been a great pleasure, Dominic. Thank you very much for asking me.